You know, there's a lot of uh, expectation and pressure on pastors and church leaders and people that serve on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, whichever you prefer, to hype it up. And I always think to myself, what hype could top the conquering of death? What hype? I I read this week of a a church that's given away a brand new car. There's still time if you want to go. There's still time. They haven't had the raffle yet. But I'm thinking to myself, man, and that's fine. I'm all for giving stuff away. But my my thought is, is, is that there's nothing greater than the reality that death cannot win. You know, every single human being that's walking the face of the earth Something that's just innate within us, there is a time, a moment, we wonder what's next. We all have this sense that life will come to an end at some point, and so many people in the world don't know, but you that are here today, you've been singing to the one and praying to the one, some of you are giving to the one right now that that conquered death. I watched with my family last night the the Passion of the Christ. We do that uh, the Sunday, uh, excuse me, the Saturday before Easter. Uh, for the last few years we've done that and just visually impacted and then that last scene the whole movie if you've never seen it it's graphic it's violent it doesn't pull any punches and revealing what Jesus endured in his body so that our sins might be atoned for but the very last scene is him standing up and the and the stone rolling away and it's probably a 20 second shot from the stone rolling away to him standing there his eyes are open all of the blood is off of him and he's standing there in absolute victory and it shows that that nail wound that wound in his hands and from those hands the blood poured forth that has caused us now forevermore to be in a right standing with God Almighty, the Holy Creator, the one who made you, the one who loved you, the one who pursued you, the one who brought the gospel to you, when you never would have given him a second thought. I promise you, I promise you, somebody's going to have to get in here with me in a minute. I promise you that you never would have given him a second thought if he had not come to you. Because Jesus even taught that nobody comes to the Father except that the Spirit draws them. No one comes to Jesus except the Lord draws them. And so God sent you the gospel. God awakened you the gospel. You saw your need. You recognized his offer. You humbled yourself and said, Lord, I surrender. You are Lord of all. I believe your death has paid for my sins. I believe your life has secured my life. And so when we think this morning, I want to just say this. I want to speak it into the atmosphere. The devil has lost. His, his greatest weapon was death and the fear of death. That's, that's the best he had. That was his nuclear warhead. He shot it at Jesus, and it was a dud. Amen? Now, all of us that are in Jesus, we have victory over that thing called death. I thought about this morning. I actually, uh, we're going to be in Luke 24. I'll get there eventually, so if you brought a Bible, you can turn there. I opened the browser on my computer this morning, and I clicked a news website, and as I was clicking it, I knew what, what I was going to see. I knew there'd be an attack on Christians somewhere in the world. I just knew it in my spirit. I clicked on it, and sure enough, in Sri Lanka, uh, on Easter Sunday morning, they're quite a bit ahead of us on the clock, um, three churches, suicide bombers, and a hotel that's known for Western tourists, blown up on Easter Sunday by suicide bombers. My thought was this, even those that hate the cross, those that hate the people of the cross, when you go into a church, and let's give the benefit of the doubt, there's absolutely no reason not to believe all of them were saved. There's no reason not to believe that. 
the ones that hate the cross and the people of the cross, even their attempts to destroy us, in essence, what they do is they become the bridge by which all those Christians entered into glory. They walked right over them and entered into glory. So Jesus said this, listen, this is an opportunity to believe Jesus. Mary was coming to him in agony because her brother was dead, and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says to her, he'll live again. And she says, I mean, she gets theological with him, highly doctrinal. She says, I know he will live again in the resurrection in the last days. And Jesus makes this stunning statement. He says, Mary, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So friends, when we think of physical death, I want to just say this, the body, it's appointed for your body to drop. It's appointed unto people once to die, but afterwards. There's an afterwards. Some of you are here today on Easter Sunday. We're so grateful. We extend a a welcome to all of you this morning. But some of you are here today, and you don't know this one who declared that he was the resurrection of a life. Maybe the songs didn't make a lot of sense this morning. Why are the people dancing, and why are the people shouting and, and making all the noise? It's because we have his life living in us, and that life is shrouded in a hope that is eternal. And this is the day that is uniquely... Uh, the day during the calendar year that we observe this. We, listen, Christmas is so heavily marketed. It is, it is basically a, kind of a, a cultural thing now. But Easter is uniquely Christian. There's no other world religion that's going to nod to it. There's no other people that can really celebrate. It's uniquely Christian, Resurrection Sunday. And so when we celebrate, we do so because he's real to us. It's not religion. It is a, it's the deepest, most important relationship that we have, and he's the one that initiated it. He's the one that maintains it. He's the one that's going to consummate it. And so all of the glory goes to him. And I just want to say this. At any point, when I'm sharing from Luke 24 this morning, which I better get started doing, I, I, I will just say this. At any point, when you begin to feel in your heart that you want to know him, that's him. That's him touching you. That's the Holy Spirit saying, it's your day. It's the Holy Spirit saying, bring it all. Bring your immorality. Bring your self-confident morality. Bring your unrighteousness. Bring your self-righteousness. Bring anything that you can and come to this one and acknowledge him in the depths of your heart that you are Lord of all. For me, August 4th, 1994 was that day. It's been almost 25 years ago. It doesn't seem possible. Um, I'm going to give my testimony before I get into this passage this morning because some of you I'll never get to talk again. And you can ignore my sermons. You can debate them. You could even reject it if you want. But I'm going to tell you, I'm the only authority on what he did for me. Amen. And nobody gets to argue with it. So I spent 1984 to 1994 indulging every sensual appetite an individual can have from age 14 to age 24. By the time I was 15, I was addicted to alcohol and drugs. I lived in constant mania, depression. I knew how to keep the rules enough to where I kept the authorities off of me and my parents off of me. But I was so lost and so empty and so miserable. By the way, I was a church kid. I had prayed the Jesus come into my heart prayer. 
I had gotten baptized at Christian camp. I knew all of the lingo. I got little pins and stickers for perfect attendance in Sunday school. I knew how to do all of the Bible Belt churchianity stuff, but I never met the Savior. And the darkness kept getting darker. The heaviness kept getting heavier. And at a time in my life where I was running so hard from God because I just knew if he ever caught up with me, that's how blind I was, I'm running from God who's everywhere. I knew if he ever caught up with me, I, I was so confident that he would just exterminate me. I was a cockroach that needed to be smushed. That's where I was in life. And God never failed in his mercies to me. There were times where I was an inch away from death. There were, there were all sorts of horrible events that took place in my life and now looking back with a, a mind that can understand what the Lord was doing I just see a shepherd's hand saying to all that was trying to kill me you're not going any further than this he always kept it at bay he sent a witness into my life a man named Scott Scott was my boss and Scott shared the gospel with me and I hated him he was one of those Christians he ate breathed slept drank sneezed Jesus everything was Jesus when I wanted to listen to Pearl Jam at work, he wanted to listen to the Gaithers. And I'd get so mad, he'd leave gospel tracks in the, in the toilet stalls in the, and, and in my lunch at the break. Everywhere I went, Scott was like an annoying angel trying to get the gospel to me. For two years, he did that. I hated him, but I knew he had something that I'd never had. In August of 1994, at the pinnacle, at the peak of my depression, I was suicidal, I was homicidal, I was lost, I was empty, I had been to Narcotics Anonymous, I had been to rehab, I had been to detox, I had been to jail, I had done everything that a person living like that life, that profligate lifestyle, I had done it all, and there was no hope. There was no hope. And on a, on a Thursday morning in 1994, I was leaving work and Scott, who was now working on a different shift, he was coming in and I was leaving and I was so empty and miserable, I thought I would just kind of throw something out to Scott because I wanted to live vicariously through his faith in Jesus. I thought maybe if I can connect with him, maybe God will give me another day. So I said, Scott, I'm going to go to church with you this Sunday because how many of you know that when you're lost and you're running from God, you tell people you'll go to church with them, but you never actually show up. I was that guy. And he took what seemed to me to be like a, a four-by-four Bible. I mean, he always had his Bible with him. And he slammed it down on the counter. And he looked at me in his old country drawl. He said, you don't need to go to church with me. You need to go home right now, fall on your face, and make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. It felt like Moses with a southern drawl. <laughs> Listen, I got in my truck and I drove about three quarters of a mile to my apartment. And I fell down on a sin-soaked, beer-soaked, smoke-soaked patch of carpet. I can still see it right now. And whatever was in me that had been bottled up so long, rage, hate, fear, hurt, all the nasty, all the addictions, all the darkness, all the demonic stuff that had just become at home in my life. In tears and inarticulate prayers, I just cried out to God. And, he, and here's what I said on that day. I said, 
the preacher told me that you would save me if I would surrender to you. I don't care if you save me. I don't care if you kill me today, but I'm done running from you. Here is my life. If you're clapping, it needs to go in that direction because I can tell you all I did was break. That's all I did. And on that day, I want to give him the glory. On that day, Jesus Christ became the Lord of my life. I didn't even know what happened to me. Had no verbiage for it. All I know is I crawled off that floor and crawled into my bed. I didn't even have a bed frame. I had a mattress on the floor. And I pulled that sheet up over my head. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever slept in peace. I had never had peace before. I woke up the next, uh, later on that day, to go into work at the night shift. And I was completely delivered of drugs and alcohol. I never did another drug, and I never to this day have not gotten drunk since that day. It was gone. Now, listen, why do I say that? Because I want to tell you, that's what life looks like. I was death. He was life. When I brought my death and submitted it to his life, his life swallowed my death, and I became a new creation in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, you don't have to be an addict or an alcoholic or a criminal or is miserable. You could be a pompous, self-righteous individual that thinks he or she has it all together. I'm going to tell you, that's just another shade of death. And what you need to do is you just need to bring all of who you are and all of what you are and lay it before all that you know about him. And he will reckon that faith. He will wipe your record clean and he will come and live inside of you. Some of you need to do that today. That's why he brought you here today. He brought you here so that you might know his life, not just a good life, not even your best life now. I'm talking about his life, eternal life, the life that only comes through the one who has conquered death. The Bible says this, that all of us who are in him, we live in him. Our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka this morning probably never heard the explosion. While I grieve for all of those that survived and all of those that lost loved ones in that moment, I grieve for them. But I'm going to tell you, I don't grieve for the ones that were ushered into the actual presence of the resurrection and the life on Easter Sunday, 2019. So I give him praise this morning. I want to speak to you this morning about an invitation to to wonder. Church, I I just want to say that I believe that it it is a constant danger for us as believers to lose our sense of wonder at God. We have heard the resurrection account. We have read the resurrection account. We have listened to sermons ad nauseum. Now we get them in our cars and on our phones and our podcasts and on our computers and whenever we're at church and we have a 24-7 prayer room that we can go and worship whenever we want and pray whenever we want. And while all of those things are huge, they're gifts of the Lord, there's the possibility that in the motions of all of that, not emotions, but the motions of all of that Christian stuff, we can actually lose our awe of God. We can actually get used to the things that are otherworldly, that are supernatural, that that do not root themselves in the realm of time and space, but are sourced in a throne room that we've not seen. And proceeding from a throne where there sits a Jewish king in a glorified body who rules and reigns over the cosmos, who gave his life and then took it back up again. And then he made this promise, I'm coming back. 
I'm coming to invade the actual terra firma of planet Earth, and I'm going to establish my rule. I'm going to establish my dominion. All of my people are going to rule and to reign with me, and he will exercise lordship over the nations. That's coming to a planet near you. And meanwhile, we're tempted at times. I'm not, I'm not being accusatory. I'm just saying it, I have to fight against it, and you might too. We're so tempted just to kind of glide our way through a Sunday, through a Monday, through a Friday, rarely stopping to think that the God of all creation inhabits the temple of my body. He speaks to me through his eternally perfect word. He speaks to me through his very ever-present Holy Spirit who lives within me, that literally I converse with the God of the ages. And we get so yeah, what else, preacher? I, I understand it, but I'm saying, can we not rush past this account today? Can, can we just linger and ask the Lord to touch us afresh today? Luke 24, verse 1. This is after the crucifixion. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. These are the women. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, that means stop and take notice. Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead. He's not here, but he is risen. Hallelujah. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and they remembered, and they remembered, and they remembered. That's what I'm calling us to do today. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. That's, that's the fellows, that's the brothers. And to all the rest, now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and Peter went home, that's the word, marveling, marveling at what had happened. If you've lost your wonder, you probably know it. He's not here to accuse you. He's not here to point your finger, his finger in your face and say, how dare you? He's here making an offer for you to get reacquainted with him because to the degree that all eyes are on Jesus and all hearts are fixated on him, to that same degree, our wonder will spike. Our awe will increase and spread. So I'm going to be so practical. I want to pray for us. So would you bow your head for a moment? Lord, I pray for me with even more zeal than I pray for anybody else in this moment. You are worthy of us to be awestricken. 
You're worthy of us to be mesmerized and marveling at you. Lord, we are in great need in this generation where there are so many churchified distractions. There's so much professional Christianity. Lord, there are so many buzzers and whistles and lights and prompts and crutches that we have to push it out. And this morning, we push it out and we just want Jesus. We just want you, Jesus. We want you. We want as much of you as you know we can handle. We give you the glory with our mouths, but Lord, we don't want our mouths to be disengaged from our hearts. We want you, you to be the most passion, uh, highest passion in our hearts. And so we bring to you today an open confession that we are not as awe-stricken by you as we could be as we should be, but we want to be. And Lord, we're convinced that if you'll make yourself known to us today, then we will leave here recalibrated in our soul. And we'll have the same marvel and wonder at Peter, who was taking his, his first steps into a resurrection reality. God, awaken those that have never come to Christ right now, in the name of Jesus, we take authority over the demonic realm in this room. We shine the light of the gospel and the blood and the throne and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ into all darkness. Take away all satanic blindness and bring life, Lord, just like you did for me. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So let me talk to you about this just for 25, 30 minutes. This invitation into wonder. Peter, the women, all of the disciples of Jesus are living out their probably 35th, 36th hour of absolute brokenheartedness. They had watched their Savior die, their Messiah Die. They had dedicated three plus years to following him. Most of them had left everything. Some of them have been, been ransomed out of the demonic realm. Mary Magdalene had seven demons inhabiting her, and Jesus took authority over them, commanded them, and she became a lifelong disciple. Peter, James, and John had a lucrative family fishing business. And when Jesus called them to follow him, they, they abandoned it and they, they gave it all back to James and John to their dad. And Peter walked away from his business and said, we will follow you. They were all in. They expected that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the, the, the redeemer of Israel would put down pagan Rome and restore the glory to the people of Israel. But on that terrible Friday, they watched him nailed to a cross. They watched him struggle with the thing on its back before he made it up Golgotha's hill. They watched him beaten, and Isaiah prophesied that he was so badly disfigured that he barely looked human. And he didn't fight back, and he didn't summon the Father. Where were the angels? Where was the power of God? Where was the deliverance for the Messiah? And as he was pinned there to those Roman timbers, 
The chief priests, the religious leaders, they mocked him. They laughed at him. They said, if you're Messiah, come on down. If you can deliver everybody else, surely you can deliver yourself. And word came that eventually, as darkness shrouded the land for three hours, and then Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? And then a short time later, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed out his last. He dismissed his own spirit, and he died. A wealthy man named Joseph donated his tomb to the body of Jesus. They took him down hastily. They didn't have time to prepare him for a proper burial because the sun was going down and Sabbath would be uh, coming very soon. So they wrapped him in linen clothes. They hastily put him into a borrowed tomb. The leaders said, roll a great stone in front of it, put guards outside of it. We don't want any of his disciples coming and stealing his body and saying that he rose again because part of his message was, it's amazing to me, by the way, that his disciples forgot that he said he would rise again, but his enemies remembered it. So he said, put a stone in front of it, post guards out there. We're not going to let that rumor get out. And so that's what the context is. It's absolute heartbreak, absolute sadness. Remember, they didn't have Luke 24. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't know what was coming. It's very clear by reading the Gospels that they thought Jesus was dead and would stay dead. So they're trying to put back together all of the pieces of their life that have been shattered in disillusionment when God didn't come through for them in the way that they thought he would come through. That Jesus, they're thinking, didn't turn out to be who they thought he was, and yet they're saying, but we know, we saw, we learned, we listened, we saw him. He, he had to have been the Messiah, but he's gone. And here we are in our circumstantial darkness. Well, the ladies were numbed by their loss. The Bible just says on the first day of the week, it's Sunday. It was early dawn, so the sun is just starting to peak. They go to Jesus' tomb, and they've got the spices that they had prepared. They couldn't prepare his body for a proper burial on Friday. And so now, at the earliest po possible opportunity, they, they rush to the tomb. As a matter of fact, Mark's gospel says, as they're going with these burial spices, one of them says, how are we going to get the rock out of the way? But they're so driven by their desire to be near Jesus, even near to him and his death, that they're not thinking practically. They're being driven by emotion, and they're coming to that place, and they've got the spices there because they're still expecting the continuation of their loss. They're not expecting a breakthrough. We, we, we have the benefit of knowing what happens. They didn't. So they're just going deeper and deeper into the context of loss and death and sadness. But in verse number two, it says, when they get there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, let's enter into it again. I'm appealing for, for us to, don't just use your mind, use your heart too. The words are easy to understand, but go there with us. Let's go there with them. So they're there, they're, they're out of breath, they're running to the tomb. None of the men even went. It's just amazing me. Just let me give this commentary. From day one, it always seems to be that the women have a greater heart passion for Jesus than men, generally speaking. And the men are probably back at home nursing their wounds and wondering what to do, planning and strategizing or just falling apart. But the women are saying, his body's in the tomb and we didn't take care of him. And they're motivated by simple love and they go to him. And when they get there, they had already asked, how are we going to roll the stone away? And when they get there, the first thing that they see is the stone's been moved. The Bible describes it in another place as a great stone. They could not have moved it on their own. And when they get there, as they approach the tomb, they see that it, it is open. I don't know what would have happened in their hearts at that point, but I can tell you this. Um, it's in the Bible because it was noteworthy. Something 
grasp them that moment. Maybe it was just a flicker of hope in the darkness. Or maybe it was a flicker of fear that they had come and robbed them of their opportunity to minister unto the Lord. But go further. In verse number 3, it says this, When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, because we have Luke 24 and we've got the other Gospels, we would expect them to start just rejoicing, giving each other high fives, celebrating the fact that his body's not there, but they didn't believe that he had been resurrected. Not at this point. Literally, Mary will testify later. She will say, somebody has come and taken him. She's actually talking to Jesus, but doesn't recognize who he is. He, she thinks he's the gardener, the one who tends to the, the burial plots. And, and she says, just tell me where he is. I'll go and get him. That's her passion. I love that about Mary. Mary Magdalene, she's saying, I, I don't care where he is. I don't care who I have to go through. I just need to be near the one that I love. And she's literally saying, I'll bring him back. Just tell me where to go. I'll bring him back. In the midst of all that was going on, God did not immediately rush to minister comfort to them. I want you to hear me on this. I'm going to just be practical with some of this stuff. We live in a generation that is aghast when God doesn't make the bad immediately disappear. When God doesn't run in and make everything cotton swabbed and comfortable and cushioned. But sometimes when God is orchestrating and facilitating the plan that only he knows the complete details on, sometimes it involves us in a situation or a season or a time where we, we have to just sit there and be in the crucible of not knowing what's going on. And they have no clue what's going on. They know one thing. Mary could have said, I, I don't know exactly what this is, but I now know that it's not what I previously thought it to be. Because they were all going there for one thing, and that one thing wasn't there anymore. So if, 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 if we can, let's just go a little bit further in this. And, and remember, let's connect with the awe of this. Because it's about to get really supernatural. What am I talking about? Well, look in verses 4 through 7, and we're going to be introduced to to one of a couple of angels that actually show up. Real angels, okay? You, you, you got to get this way. Real angels, angelic beings, holy beings created by God, appearing in the form of humans, Luke 24, 4. And they see these glorious messengers. It says, while they were perplexed, all the women were having their minds blown. While they're in that state of being confused and perplexed, behold, that means stop, take notice, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, we know from the other Gospels that there is an angelic visitation. There's a couple, actually, that take place. The other Gospel writers give different snapshots of what happened on resurrection morning. But here you've got these two angels, two angels coming to be the first verbal witnesses of the resurrected Son of God. And they, they picked the women. The women worshipers, the women who were coming with spices, the women that were desperate, the women who, who were being motivated, not with their minds and their intellects, but being motivated by their love for Jesus and being driven just to be near him, even if it was his dead corpse, we just want to be near Jesus. And as they're coming into that place where they're being drawn by love and they see a circumstance that they don't understand, the stones rolled away, they go inside the tomb, which, by the way, was a no-no for kosher Hebrews. You just don't go into that place of death. That's not something... You you casually stroll into but they didn't care 
And they popped in there, and when they're in that state of perplexity, there are two shining, brilliant, dazzling, bright, heavenly creatures that have been dispatched by the Father to come to planet Earth and to begin communicating the peak of the gospel has occurred. The peak of the gospel was not the cross. Never diminishing the significance of the cross, the atoning, effectual sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. But if he stayed on the cross or stayed in the tomb, we would have no good news. The good news, friends, is that he went through all of that willingly, sacrificially, substitutionarily took upon him all of the wrath of the Father, all of the sin that was mine and yours, all of it. And it was placed upon him. He became sin. He knew no sin of himself, but he became our sin. And the Father punished our sin by punishing Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, it said, It pleased the Father to bruise him. It's not that God the Father is sadistic. It is this, that if sin was ever to be atoned for, it had to be atoned for by God. And in an inner Trinitarian agreement, Son and Father and Spirit agreed that the Son would go and pay the price for your sin. Oh, friends, listen, let's go there for a minute. Somebody's got to die for your sin. God never ignores sin. He can't. He's too holy to tolerate it. And he's too wise and holy to ignore it. It must be remedied. And the only remedy for sin is the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is zero remission. There is no forgiveness. And therefore, because the wage of sin is death, the, what sin earns is a death. There's a death that is attached to my sin and your sin, and somebody's got to die that death. And there are only two choices. There's only two. You can die. You can die for your sin. And you will die, and you will die, and you will die, and you will die and die and die and you will never stop dying in that spiritual separation from God and in a place that Jesus himself called hell. I know that's not popular. It wasn't in Jesus' day either, but it's still true. You can choose that. You can say, I'm not bowing. I'm not going to have this man to rule over me. I'm not going to acknowledge him. What does his death have to do with me? I'm better than so-and-so. I can live this way, and I try to keep my moral high ground, and I don't do all the bad things, and I, you, you, make, you create your own list of things you do and don't do, and you hold it before God, and God laughs at it because we underestimate the holiness of God. So if you want to die for your sin, you will. Always paying, never paid. Or you can believe in the one who saw your eternal dilemma, your hopeless impossibility, your lostness, your deadness. And instead of being repulsed by you, he moved toward you, laying down his life in mercy and grace and love for you because he knows somebody's got to pay for your sin. And it, it, these words are not biblical, but it is the, the picture that we get. He, he says, in essence, he says, Father, we love this one. We do not want this one to die for her sin for all of eternity. 
Father, I will die for her sin. Put her sin on me. Punish me for her sin. And then take my right standing with you, my holy standing with you, your love for me, and place it on her and let her go free. I will be the lamb that is sacrificed so that she can go free. Friends, there's got to be a time in every single one of our lives, every single one of us, have to decide what to do with that. There is no, I'll get to it when I get to it. My friend, I'm going to be very bold with you here. You actually don't get to set the timetable. Say, well, Jeff, when do we come? Are you convicted of your need today? Then you come today. He will not turn you away. He will say yes to all who say yes to him. So the angels come and declare that he's no longer dead, but that he is alive. Look down in verses 5 and 6. I love how casual sometimes, and I'm preaching a different message in the next service surrounding resurrection, but it's, it's amazing to me how the angels and the Lord himself are almost casual about how they interact with people after, after the resurrection. It says as they were frightened, the women were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, the angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. I, I like it. It is a gentle rebuke. It's almost as if the angels are like, what are y'all doing here? What, what? You're looking for Jesus. He's, he's alive. This is a scene of death. This is, this is a place of death. He, he's not going to hang out here. He has risen from the dead. Now, listen, because we've heard that 36,000 times in our life, we're like, okay, next verse, next verse. No, no, stop. His body was wrapped in burial cloth. With all of its wounds, he was lacerated, he was beaten, he had gaps in his skull and on his face where hair had been ripped off, his eyes would have been pummeled shut. By the time they lay him in that tomb, he's going into rigor already. And then as he lay there on that cold stone tablet, he, he literally physically dead, not swooning, not just spiritually going through the motions, physically tasted full death. That means his blood stopped flowing in its veins. His heart stopped pounding. His brain stopped firing, uh, uh, firing on the inside. All of his bodily functions stopped. He was dead. No pulse, no respiration. Dead. Dead. And there he was tasting that physical death, fully entering into it. And they're going there to find him, but somewhere, somewhere before dawn, the heart began to pump in his body. His lungs began to draw in air and exhale air. The, the, the veins began to move with blood. Color began to come back to his frame. His hands and his feet began to move. And the, body, uh, the Bible indicates that it seems that he passed right up through the burial clothes that had shrouded him. He was fully dead and now forevermore fully alive. And we can't yawn at that. We can't make it anything less than it was that he tasted death. Listen, when Satan, I wish, I just, I cannot wait to get the glory because I believe we will have full revelatory knowledge and we'll be able to see what the devil and all his whole host of demons did on that three days. Because I can tell you, when, when he gave up the ghost and bowed his head, hell was celebrating. Hell was happy. Hell was full of diabolical rejoicing because the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, they had destroyed him. 
And all the demons were frenzied and they loved the sorrow that filled the land. They loved the fact that the religious leaders had had accomplished their purpose. The very people that were supposed to stand for God had actually been the pool of the tools of Satan. So hell was happy for a minute. And on this morning, on this morning, on this morning, because the devil's not omniscient. His, his demons don't know everything. And so there had to be a moment in time that these created fallen angels began to understand and then began to communicate that the one that they threw their greatest weapon at, the one that all the forces of hell had come against to destroy, the one they thought that they had entombed forever was now walking around Jerusalem showing himself alive by many infallible proofs. When, um, when the bad guy uses his best weapon on you and it doesn't work, he knows he has lost. He has nothing greater to throw against the Son of God. And by the way, he's got nothing greater to throw at you. Death is his secret weapon. And when Jesus comes into our lives, his greatest weapon, the enemy's greatest weapon, is ineffective. It's inoperative against us. And so he has lost. Some of you have lost loved ones this year. You've said goodbye to believers who were precious to you. And I will never be one of those super spiritual pastors that tells you to suck it up, don't grieve, they're in heaven. That is terrible counsel. Grieve, but don't grieve as those that don't have hope. Don't sorrow as if it's over, because I'm going to tell you something. They had experienced about 36 hours of absolute loss, and now the angels are saying... Anything that you've lost over the last 36 hours has been granted back to you in a form that you will never lose. And so let me finish up the text here. So the angels did say this very quickly. Don't you remember how he told you, verse 6, 7? Don't, don't you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? That happened. They saw it must be crucified that happened they saw it and on the third day rise they completely forgot they had completely forgotten they had watched and by the way Jesus didn't just say this once I count at least three times there may be four times where Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and said they're going to kill me and I will rise again three days later I'm going to rise again and it went over the heads. They never could remember it. It was almost like they didn't want to get past the fact that they said that he said he was going to die. And they missed the best news. Sometimes that's like us. Sometimes when we are locked into the loss, we forget what he said about what's coming. We get locked into what we forfeited, what's been taken from us, what we fumbled, what we never received. We get locked into what we don't have, and in, in an unholy amnesia, we forget that he has spoken to what, what our full inheritance is going to be. And we start living in the moment of losing something temporary, and we lose our all with the one who has given us all things eternal. And so, verses 8 through 12. I just say that this was the wrong place for indifference. An empty tomb is the wrong place for you to shuffle your feet, shrug your shoulders, and say, so, so what? You, you can't ignore it. You can reject it, but you can't ignore it. And so... 
the women released the words. Ladies, this is for you. Hallelujah. They remembered his words. So the angel just said, don't you remember? And they're like, we do remember that. We remember that. Oh, that's why the tomb's empty. Oh, that's why the angels are here. Oh, that's why the stone isn't where it used to be. We remember. Can you just be there for the ladies, uh, with the ladies for a moment? It's not like Mary and Joanna and Mary Magdalene said, oh, super. Great, okay. Yeah, we get it. Great, okay. Now, thank you for reminding us. God bless you. They would have, they would, the thing would have blown up. They would have take, been taken from the pit of doom, gloom, and despair and brokenheartedness and just jet thrusters up to, oh, for the glory of God, my king is alive. My Lord is alive. Where is he? We've got to see him. Where is he? So the ladies get this. And this is, I love this, man. When, when God wanted to get the message out that Jesus was alive, he sends angels and women. <laughs> I'm sorry if you think he doesn't do that. I still think he does both. Amen. Angels and women. That's, by the way, that's one of the, the tenets of why we know the Gospels are true. Because if a man, I, I was actually debating with a, a Muslim this weekend. And this is what he said. He said, yeah, uh, even his own disciples abandoned him. And then out of embarrassment, they had to invent a story that he rose again. And they concocted a whole worldwide religion. And y'all will know that Jesus the prophet will come back and he's going to testify to Muhammad. He's going to testify to Muhammad when he comes back. All y'all got is a dead religion. I just gave him my testimony. I said, I'm not here to argue with you, man. Let me just tell you what Jesus did for me. But, but here, here's the beautiful thing. If a man had concocted the story of rising again, whoever wrote the story would have put a man in the center of it. And the Lord said to me, Peter, that he is alive. And I stepped forth in the streets of Jerusalem and declared, the Lord has risen. That's the way a man would have wrote it. A man never would have put women in the center of it because women in that day didn't even have valid legal testimony in the courts of law. The witness of women was not even in, uh, submitted into courts of law. It wasn't verified, much less angels. I mean, good night alive. I just love the fact that the Lord does not play the status quo Bible Belt version of the gospel. Amen. I think we'll see both of those rise up. So both of what, Jeff? I think we'll see a, a, a raising of women in a prophetic and proclaiming ministry. And I do believe we'll be encountering angels here. So you can put that in your handkerchief pocket and I'll be moving on to the next point. I'm almost done. I got like, I got enough time. Here we go. So the men rejected the message. Guys, let's just own this because this can be us. doesn't have to be, but it can be. So the women come in. And they're telling the apostles all this stuff. These are the big guys, you know, these are the dudes. And all these words seemed unto them an idle tale. And then the Bible just says it, and they did not believe. They didn't believe it. They, they did not believe. The women are coming in. Hey, guys, come on, man. I'm, and ladies, don't punish us for this. It's just, we're, 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 not, we're, not, we're a little thick sometimes. The women come in, and they're just bursting. They're probably talking all over each other, and they're, they're just crying and shouting, angels, and the stones rolled away, and uh, we had to donate the burial spices to another worthy cause because we didn't need them. And, you know, it's just all this stuff, and they're just going on, and it's probably like almost a hysterical, a gloriously hysterical thing. And, and the men are like, bunch of emotional women. 
Can, can we get a little order in here, please? Will you just calm down? Can't you say we're have, see we're having a solemn assembly here? We don't have time for joy right now. We're mourning. And this is the greatest news. And the guys are just straight up. They're just not believing it. Imagine how the ladies felt. It's like, oh, these are our leaders, huh? Okay, great. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate that. Now, so... So they're, they're doing all of this. And listen, this is where we have to remember. We read this just verse, 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 verse. A doctrinal statement, doctrinal statement, doctrinal statement, and a narrative, a narrative, a narrative. Can we just be Christians for a moment and enter into that? I, I, I don't, I'm not here to say that if I had been in the room, I would have said, yes, we believe you ladies, take us. I probably have been one of those guys. But, but the reality is, is you've got a collision of two worlds here. You've got joy being communicated from heavenly sources coming against depression and sadness and lostness and darkness from the human realm. And so joy is coming against it and the, the doom and the gloom is having a hard time surrendering to the joy. By the way, that describes where some of you are at in life right now. I'm getting this right now. Some of you right now, God is just coming so strongly and offering you joy. He's offering you the ability to feel him. He's offering you, offering you the ability to just lose yourself in the wonder. He's calling you to, to stop bowing constantly at the altar of only those things that you can understand. He's saying, fine, I'm going to give you understanding, but I want to experience you. Don't you want to experience me, child? And we're so reluctant like these guys. It's like they were allergic to hope. It's like, keep that stuff away from me. So verse number 12, good old Peter. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. Say what you want about Peter, but um, the dude didn't lack initiative. He wasn't going to take the women's word for it, nor was he going to just sit there and be a doubter. He knew where the tomb was. He could go find out for himself. If the stones rolled away, it still rolled away. So Peter runs. He runs. He wants to find out if it's real, and he doesn't want to waste any time. And when he gets in there, the, end, the last verse, it says he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Those are the things Jesus was wrapped in. And then the, the, the thing they would have placed over his face. And there's nothing there for him, so he goes back home. But notice how he goes back home. He's marveling. He's starting to wonder. Awe is starting to move in his veins could it be could it really be and i love the fact that that moment john was with him by the way we find that in the other gospel but i love the fact that in a moment where peter knew he had to find out for himself whether this whole story was true he didn't wait for God to bring it to him. God had already brought it to him through the women. He didn't make God prove it. He used the light that he had and he acted on it. He did what he could. As I close this morning, this is what I want to say. Two, two, two groups I'm going to talk about. One is the group of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. And God is inviting you to return to wonder. You've gotten, possibly, if this is you, you'll know if it's you or not, you've gotten so casual in your Christianity that it's now just a set of theological data that you've signed off on. You believe rightly, you're justified, you're saved, Christ is Lord, 
but you feel nothing for him. Your heart has grown a little still, a little chill. And the Lord's just saying, I want to invite you back into a place where you find me awesome again. Awesome. Now, friends, nobody can do that for you, but I can tell you this. The Bible is very clear. Draw near to God, and what will he do? So you take one little human-sized step towards him in faith and saying, I want more. I want more. I want more. And he takes a divine-sized step towards you, and he says, you're about to get more. And you keep doing that. By the way, be like Peter. Don't wait. Run. Run. And then the last group, and I'm going to ask us to stand to our feet. Thank you for giving me five extra minutes. Last group is just very simple, my friends. Some of you have not been to the cross, much less the empty tomb, and that's not an indictment on you. I told you that was me. That was all of us. Any saved person in here, any born-again Christian, all of us had a moment in our lives where we weren't born again, where we, we were lost and we were confronted not just by a sermon, but more importantly by the Spirit of the Lord inside of us saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord you need. He's the Savior I've sent. And now is your time. So can I say this? Don't wait. Run to him. Run to him. It's not a religious experience. But it, there has to be a moment in your life. And listen, I say right now. If you know that you need him, if you are tired of your sin, or at least if you are concerned that your sin is an affront to a holy God, which it is. If the fear of God is on you, which is the beginning of wisdom according to the Bible. If in your moment right here, right now, you know that Jesus is not Lord of your life, but you want him to be. Let me tell you why you want him to be. Because he's in the room going after your heart right now. If you don't want him to be, I can't help you. But if you do want him to be, he's already stirring in your heart right now. All you need to do is say yes. What does that look like? It means an acknowledgement, a wholehearted acknowledgement that you're a sinner. I don't care if it's not a popular word, it's a Bible word. Only sinners need to be saved. If you're not a sinner, you can't be saved. But the Bible says we're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God. And so in that moment, if you can acknowledge in humility, I'm a sinner like the rest of the human race. If you can also acknowledge, but Jesus came and died for sinners. He paid that price. He paid the wage of death. His death is available to me to pay for my sin. And then you enter into a moment where it's this faith and this word we call repentance. It means he is more important than I. My life must be submitted to his lordship. And in that moment, you experience repentance where you say, he's Lord, I am not. I confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. And you do something that we don't hear too much about anymore. You wave a white flag of surrender. You say, Lord, your glory, not mine. Your truth, not my version of it. Your offer, not my fear. Your blood on my sin, I trust you. Would you bow your head?
I'm not going to lead you in a fancy prayer because I don't want your confidence to be in a prayer. But if you know he has got a hold of your heart right now and you want to surrender to him, right now just say, Jesus, I want you as Lord of my life. Take the throne of my heart. I trust you today. My life is yours now. I trust you to lead me. Thank you for taking away my sin and my death. Now help me to walk in resurrection life. If you've released yourself to him today, you just end that simple prayer by a thanks because that's an indicator you trust that he did it. You don't need angels to descend. There doesn't need to be a vision. That doesn't have to happen. For by grace, through faith, you're saved. It is the gift of God. As we dismiss this morning, on behalf of the pastoral staff and the leadership team here, we wish you a joyful Resurrection Sunday. If you did receive Christ this morning, we would love to know about that. We'd just like to ask you, just come down front as we dismiss. Just come down front. Our pastors will be down here. We'd love to be able to reach out to you and have somebody help you with what next steps are. God bless you. Enjoy the beautiful day this afternoon. We'll see you.